You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is your host, Stephen Roach. This is Season 5, Episode 13. I'm excited to share with you today that submissions to our first annual Bright Wings Poetry Contest are now open. If you're a poet or writer and would like the chance to win $500 plus the opportunity to read your poem on a Makers and Mystics episode, visit makersandmystics.com or follow the link in the show notes of this episode. Deadline for submissions is July 31st, 2019. Charlie Peacock is a Nashville-based, four-time Grammy Award-winning composer, record producer, and recording artist. His production credits include Chris Cornell, Ladysmith Black Mombazo, and Americana successes such as The Lone Bellow, Holly Williams, and The Civil Wars. Charlie is considered one of Nashville's most prolific cultural influencers and has dedicated himself to championing the independent music scene, which he has served for over 40 years. Alongside of his work in music production and songwriting, Charlie and his wife Andy co-founded Art House America in 1991, which is a nonprofit created to inspire a seamless life of Christian discipleship and imaginative living. The Art House in Nashville is still actively serving their city's art and entertainment community today. More recently, Charlie and Andy have co-founded a blog called The Writer and the Husband, which chronicles their thoughts on life, art, relationship, and faith. Earlier this year, I had the privilege of traveling to Nashville, where I was invited to interview Charlie in his home studio. I think you'll enjoy being a part of our conversation on imagination as the engine of creativity and on what it means to love through the lens of song. Be sure to see the show notes of this episode for a link to Charlie and Andy's blog, to the Makers and Mystics creative community, and to the Bright Wings Poetry Contest. This is my interview with artist and record producer, Charlie Peacock. Well, I'm sitting here in the beautiful home of Charlie Peacock in Nashville, Tennessee. And Charlie, I'm thrilled to have you on Makers and Mystics, and I appreciate you. you opening your home to me for this conversation. Thank you. You've been doing music and art for over 50 years, and we've got 30 minutes to encapsulate that. (laughs) (laughs) We better get started. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, I know that also lately something I've been seeing from you on social media a lot is this beautiful visual art that you're doing. And to be honest, uh, that was a shock to me Mm. because I know you as a producer and I know you as a musician. Yeah. uh, But then suddenly it was just all this visual art started coming out and Mm -hmm. it was really incredible art. So tell me more about that. Well, um, I've been an artist since I was a little boy, you know, I mean, I'm in one way or another. So sometimes people, I'm known so much for music that, um, you know, prior to be becoming known for music, uh, I was interested in all sorts of things. And so in reality, I, my first passion was drawing early on. Then my second passion was reading. And then my third passion was writing. So by the time when we got married, when we were 18 and 19, I was sending off poetry to Atlantic Monthly and poetry anthologies, and I thought I was going to be a 
a poet and the great American novelist, <laughs> right? And and of course, I was doing music. I mean, that was the one thing that people would pay me for. <laughs> Um, Wait, you got paid for music? Yes, <laughs> I'm I'm of the generation that have been paid for music from the very beginning, mm-hmm. and uh, so I, I know that's a unique, privileged place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We said it at the beginning of the show, but you've been doing this for forty plus years. Mm-hmm. Uh, give me the elevator pitch of how this just started and how you just snowballed into. Uh, now you've done thousands of artists and mm-hmm. launched the careers of, of so many people. You've worked yeah. with a lot of the Civil Wars and, and Switchfoot and a lot mm-hmm. of people that um, that have just done incredible things. How did you first know that production was going to be an anchor for the art that you make? Well, I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't know. Like I was describing to you um, that trajectory as a, as a small child and and starting my own uh, music in the in the fourth grade, and so while I was doing art and writing and really into books, uh, I was working on music too. And then when I um, became a freshman in high school, my best friend was a songwriter, and that really kind of opened me up to. I I'd started writing songs. Uh, a couple of them in seventh and eighth grade and then so that freshman year was really when I started to write songs and then that's also when I met Andy so now I had subject matter you know (laughs) I could write about her and so the very first two songs I ever recorded um, uh, when I was I recorded them when I just turned 15 and um, my dad took me to David Geffen's office in Los Angeles and because and somehow, you know, I, I didn't know any better, right? So I just figured, well, Geffen had signed Jackson Brown, and Jackson Brown was like 18 or 19 when he signed him. I'm, I'm like, well, hey, I'm almost 16. Surely he'll be interested in signing me to a record deal. Yeah. So that kind of set the stage. But again, I was... I didn't know at that time, oh, for sure I'm going to be a pop star, you know, or for sure I'm going to be a fine artist or a writer or whatever. Mm-hmm. I was just interested in making a lot of things, you know. And I was interested in Andy, and I was interested in sports, and, and um, I mean, I was just, a, you know, probably the, the common boy of that era, except I was an artsy kid. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and I lived. I came from the country too, so I was very visceral, physical person. You know, rode motorcycles, um, worked in agriculture in the summers, and um, it was very. My whole existence was really tied to place and the earth and making. Mm-hmm. So, um, and my family uh, moved from uh, Louisiana, Texas, and Oklahoma here during the Dust Bowl era. So they were very uh, independent. Mm-hmm. And so this notion of like, you get up in the morning, you take care of business, you make stuff uh, for yourself and for your family and your community. That was just embedded in me. Mm-hmm. So by the time I got to the point when Andy and I got married, I knew that, wow, I'm either going to be a dishwasher, a fry cook, or a musician, <laughs> you know, because poetry's not paying that well. And so it was just kind of a natural turn. And then the music thing had two aspects. It had jazz, and it had the singer-songwriter aspect. 
And as a result of, of the singer-songwriter part, I started buying gear and learning how to record myself and borrowing gear from people and, and working, uh, well, in those days, what was called sound-on-sound, sound, using uh, two two-track recorders and, and two reels of tape, which we would continually flip around. And uh, so I kind of got a little bit adept at that. And by the time I was in the studio, I was now at that point, uh, I had discovered other artists who, uh, like an artist like Todd Rundgren, who was, an, who was a recording artist, but also a record producer, songwriter, engineer. So then I began to see, oh, that's what I should be. You know, I should be all those things. And, uh, and that got reinforced more and more when I, I was signed to a development deal with A&M Records in 1980 and was, um, uh, worked with a producer named David Kahn. And uh, so he was my first sort of real producer that I'd worked with. And David did everything. I mean, he needed a string chart. He wrote that. He programmed the drum machine. You know, he wrote the second verse. He, you know, it was kind of like he gave you acupuncture. <laughs> it was like literally, you know, what do you need? So then, I mean, that just shaped my idea of what a producer was. Mm -hmm. You know, a producer was someone that worked alongside an artist and brought out the best in them. And if there were any deficiencies, whatsoever in in that person's artistry it was your job my job to fill the gap mm -hmm. uh, and so I, and with any given artist you know you might be 17 percent of the artistry you might be zero percent you know but the idea was that you were some kind of a unique character that could find your way into this other person's artistry and help them do what they do, and at the end of it, have something better than if they'd just been left to their own devices. Mm -hmm. So that's what really set me off as a producer. That's real interesting about the role of the producer as someone who draws things out of an artist that perhaps they didn't even know was inside of them. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine it just takes a real discerning heart even to see things in the artist that perhaps they don't even see in themselves. Yes. Yes. Well, because you're, you're always um, confronted by two um, primary distinct forces, and one is a lack of confidence and the other is overconfidence. <laughs> and so you're seeking, you know, to sort of balance things out, right? So those things you should be confident about, bring them forward in a humble way, mm -hmm. right? And those things that you're not confident about, let's work on those until you feel that you are confident so that the performance is not tainted by these uh, feelings that you or I would sense. And instead, the, someone, you hear a performance and it puts you at ease. And then you're able to enter into it because you, you feel the confidence of the artistry. Mm -hmm. I mean, every, I think everyone knows what it feels like if you watch someone perform who is just scared out of their mind and not confident at all, yeah. right? Uh -huh. You maybe become very empathetic to them right but you don't say 
man, I'm going to run right out right now and buy the recording. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> no, you're, you're usually thinking, they're not quite there yet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So a producer's job is to get to get the artist there because sometimes they're really there uh, in their potential. They just have issues that need to be worked through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's almost a very pastoral role in some sense. It is. It's psychological, it's pastoral, mm-hmm. artistic, yeah, spiritual. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're there to be a person's friend for a month or two months, confidant. Mm-hmm. You know, um, sometimes um, you have to build that bridge with a person very, very quickly by being transparent yourself so that they'll feel safe. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that's how you get honest records. Yeah. Yeah. Which is what we all want, right? Yeah. Yeah. We really do. And, and I'm, you know, I've made a lot of dishonest records. <laughs> uh, and, and what I mean by that is that, um, there's a way to make a recording that is a professional recording. In other words, these are skilled people doing doing uh, things that sound like uh, popular music and sort of obey the conventions of it and do it well. I mean, it, once you become skilled, you can do that, right? But it's an entirely different thing to enter into a relationship with an artist, and then no matter what you do, if you just take sort of the sonic equivalent of a Polaroid or whether you build the feature film, it's honest. And that, that's really what you're shooting for. Something that stood out to me as a thread through everything that you were saying is a lifestyle of humility and a lifestyle of other-centeredness. And uh, even when you're talking about you know, working with musicians, sometimes there will be an overconfidence in some people, and then in other situations, there will be an underconfidence or a lack of confidence. You know, I heard someone say to me one time uh, that humility is not a lack of confidence, mm-hmm. you know. And when I think of humility, I see that as an important part of both the creative process and the spiritual life. And that really stands out to me in the work that you've done is this other-centeredness. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I uh, aspire to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me this. Uh, we were talking before the show, and you had so many amazing things that, that you said to me. You were talking about imagination as the engine of creativity and in production as well as your visual art and your writing and all these things. Imagination, it's such an innate part of our humanity. It's such an innate part of who we are as human beings, of the way that we've been made. Um, But I love looking at imagination as the engine of creativity. And I know a lot of times if you're working with an artist, uh, you have to envision something that's not presently there, you know, or when you're staring at a blank canvas. Right. Yeah, tell me some about imagination from your perspective. Well, I think part of it is is defining the words. And for me, creativity is uh, the fruit of the imagination, or it is the fruit of craft. Um, and so I, I sort of sit... In, imagination over in its own category, important category of, of the ability to call to mind the possibilities. 
And um, so there's there's an aspect of, of skill that's involved, and then there is a an openness. And for me, that means that's an openness to God, to um, to ask God to help me imagine things that go beyond my skill and go beyond my experience, but yet are rooted in my real life, the life that I'm living here on the planet and among people and, and place. And so I sort of point my compass towards that first and believe that, um, that the realm of ideas, the realm of intention, and the, the ability to set before yourself 14 potential ideas and say, I will borrow from 3, 7, and, and 9, and I'm going to make something based on these three concepts or ideas. And then that's when creativity begins. And I think most of the time you'll hear people use the word synonymously and, and as if they're the same thing. But what I believe is that you can have all sorts of creativity that could be um, well-crafted mm-hmm. uh, without a lot of intentionality. Um, and you could have creativity that just sort of happens by accident and therefore uh, it never finds any traction. Mm-hmm. Right? So I like to embed my creativity with imagination. And, and just the idea of, again, like I mentioned a moment ago, like dreaming for your neighbor. What is, what is the good that your neighbor needs? And is that good uh, to be told the truth about something, to correct a lie that's been believed? Is it, is it a need for beauty? Um, and then to begin to imagine for that, uniquely for that person or that circumstance, and then create out of that place Mm -hmm. because otherwise um, the only option that you have is you just copy culture Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and um, and there's a ton of that going on right Um, uh, I like to tell people that there's never been a time in my history that there's been so much good music Mm-hmm. Like everywhere you look, the technology uh, has democratized everything. And there's you can go on Spotify right now and listen to channel after channel of really good music, but not great music mm-hmm. and not astonishing and not innovative. Right. And the only way you get to that is through imagination that leads to failure, which leads to assessment, which leads to imagination and correction and all of that. That's a completely different process than saying, I love this artist and so I'm going to write songs that are in the vein of that artist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just something that all humans can develop an ability to do. Sure. Right? Um, but cultivating the imagination as the engine of creativity. I think is is what I would call a first thing, mm-hmm. whereas creativity is a second thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I would, you know, argue that you got to get the first thing right, yeah, <laughs> and then yeah. you'll get a lot of good second things. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's good. How, as a producer, how do you help draw that out of the people that you work with and the artists that you work with? 
Yeah, a part of it is um, is to do a lot of quiet analysis mm-hmm. and assessment uh, of what uh, an artist values, what their habits are, and then honestly try to dis- disrupt those. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love it. Because, um, I mean, as an example, let's say you're a singer-songwriter and, and you play guitar, right? Well, there's a thing that happens... Um, with your hand on the neck of the guitar, that guitarists fall into uh, chordal positions. Right? So their hand is used to sort of reaching down and grabbing that D or bar chording, uh, that G minor, or whatever it is, right? And they, they've just sort of have this muscle memory, right? Uh, and if you take that muscle memory away from them, do you still have a song? Mm-hmm. Like, if you say, you can't do any of that, are they still able to find the music? Mm-hmm. Sometimes they can't, because they're so shocked by the fact of, of having this tool taken away from them. So for me, it's, it's to say, no, uh-uh, the music always existed. It's just there waiting for you to find it. Mm-hmm. And you don't need those chordal positions to find it. Mm-hmm. Are they a tool to find them? Of course they are. Mm-hmm. But if you keep falling into the place of, of playing the same chord changes, your melodic development is going to go in a similar direction. Mm-hmm. And so we need to disrupt that. And let's, let's start a song based solely on a rhythmic basis or by writing a lyric first or just talking for three hours about things that you value. Mm-hmm. Whatever it might be, but but it needs to be disrupted um, more often than not. There's not that many artists who do that for themselves, mm-hmm. you know, because it requires that that some part of your life is is given over to the notion of like how things are made, why they're made, and how they're put together, and then being able for whatever reason, whether it's uh, talent or skill, ability or uh, sort of spiritual DNA that you're able to analyze those things and then represent them mm-hmm. to an artist. Um, but again, I think the great artists do that for mm-hmm. themselves. And um, um, and so whenever I work with artists, if they haven't picked up on that yet, I try to hip them to that. Yeah, that's really good. I, you know, we we tend to gravitate toward the familiar I think just in general in life Mm -hmm. and so I love the idea of creativity as a disruption of our norm yeah and uh, sometimes that that could be as simple as like you said as uh, maybe transposing it from the piano to a different instrument or reinterpreting the voice but to have someone to come alongside of you and uh, let you know that those possibilities are even there to begin with. Yeah, just make someone a little uneasy mm-hmm. uh, so that they find the ease again in a fresh way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, to me, it's critically important to making not just good art, but, it, but also art that has the ring of familiarity and the surprise of the new. I think that's, that's all the really, really good art does that. Can I just say, as a as an artist and a musician and a writer myself, that I just want to say thank you mm. 
for everything that you've contributed to Thank you the world of art that. and to the world of music and to the world of faith and all that. Just as, I don't know if you'd say a son of this generation coming up, like, mm-hmm. I just want to say thank you. Mm. And I appreciate all that you've poured out onto the musicians and the artists that you've worked with and served over the years, mm. you know, so. Thank you. For my own sake, I wanted to say that. But I would also love to hear after such a, a life of, of serving artists and, and a life of faith in art. You've built art communities. I know you have the art house here in mm-hmm. Nashville that you started and several others. Like After seeing such a scope of, of that world, what do you see on the horizon? Like, or, or what do you feel would be a very important next step for these conversations on art and faith and for artists in general to flourish in the work that we've been called to do. What do you see on the horizon? Hmm. Well, that's... It's a big question, I guess. That is a big question. (laughs) That sounds like a question you should ask Jeremy Begbie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we'll call him back. Actually, I did ask him a similar question on his episode. (laughs) I can tell you what matters to me, and that's about all I can do. Uh, I I can't speak for everyone that's interacting in this hot zone of of Christian faith and art. My dream has always been that everyone, all people who profess to follow Jesus, but uh, in particular the artists, that they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is nothing that they can do to make God love them more or love them less. And that grace would be at the foundation of everything that they do. Because I believe that without grace, there's no freedom. And without freedom, uh, there's no art which sets people free. So I advocate for the freedom, but I advocate equally for a a super old antiquated word called discipleship. Because I think you need to know the story. I'm not a big, I mean, I love it when people remember verses from the Bible or whole sections of the Bible, and I think that's awesome to be able to memorize that. But what I'm most concerned with is that if pressed, an artist could tell you the story from Genesis to Revelation, just as an artist would tell that story and that you would, it would be so deep and so much a part of who you are that you would be able to tell that story. So freedom plus knowing the story and out of the freedom and knowing the story, living in community with others, walking humbly with God, asking the question, what does it mean to love my neighbor? All of those things together, I think, are the seedbed for faithful artistry and so i would i guess you would always find me advocating for that sort of collection of things Mm -hmm. and my hope and dreams uh, for the arts and christian faith are wrapped up in that amazing charlie thank you so much for joining me on makers and mystics thank you for having me and as always thank you for listening to the makers and mystics podcast this episode was produced by me, Stephen Roach, with music by Charlie Peacock and content curation by Anne-Marie Mueller. 
If you've been inspired by this podcast, please consider joining our growing community of patrons at patreon.com slash makersandmystics. We'll see you again next week with our next Artist Profile episode.